Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore topics that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider the secret life of church ladies. I didn't even realize that that was a topic that fascinated me until I saw that it was the title of Disha Filia's debut collection of short stories. And if ever there was a title that drew me in, that is it right there. I started seeing the book everywhere. It got such great reviews, and it was winning award after award after award. And then we got so lucky because we connected with Disha through the Miami Book Fair. So the Miami Book Fair is a truly remarkable week-long annual book festival with hundreds of authors from around the world. It's the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. How have we never been to the Miami Book Fair? I don't know. It's a disgrace. I know. It is. (laughs) We did go this year online, but we've never been in person. That's true. Okay. Something to aspire to. So you can see more at www.miamibookfair.com and on Twitter and Instagram. We're so grateful to them for helping to set up our conversation with Disha, whose writing about race, parenting, gender, and culture has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, McSweeney's, the Rumpus, Harvard Review, and elsewhere. In the words of the National Book Foundation, when it named The Secret Lives of Church Ladies a National Book Award finalist, the book, quote, revels in the beautiful mess of life, depicting generations of Black women navigating love, sex, death, family, and faith through the sanctuary and structures of the church. In a veritable showcase of narratives, each of Filia's stories explores these complex drives and the ways they resonate deeply within the community of her characters and the universal well of human experience. I mean right? Yes. They put it so well and just, it is so, so good. And it is all the more impressive because it accomplishes so very much in relatively few pages. I mean, this book is short. You can sit down and read it in one blissful sitting. And I highly recommend that you do that. We loved talking to Disha about some of the experiences in her life that inspired the stories and the themes that run through them. We started by asking her how it felt to have so much success with her very first book of fiction. Here's what she said. It feels amazing, (laughs) Um, full stop. (laughs) Um, And I was really just gobsmacked because, you know, my book was everything that people will say doesn't succeed. You know, it's small. It's on a university press. It wasn't with the big five. It's a short story collection. And everybody in publishing tells you short stories don't sell. And even readers, you know, who have embraced the book will start by saying, I really don't like short stories, but, or I've never read a short story collection before, but, and so I didn't go into it with any big um, expectations. Um, So that made the success of the book doubly wonderful. And I'm just really grateful for it, especially given uh, last year, you know, it came out September 1st and we were still very much in some of the dark days, darkest days of the pandemic For me, it was definitely, you know, a bright spot in an otherwise um, grim time. 
As I understand it, when you were a girl in Jacksonville, Florida, you attended many churches, African Methodist Episcopal, Baptist, Pentecostal, Church of God in Christ. Can you tell us a little about what that was like? What do you think draws people to church? And when did you start to chafe against it? For me, it was because I, you know, had always been sent to church. And I think that's an important distinction. My mother and my grandmother did not go to church themselves until I was in college, um, but they sent me. I asked about it once when I was growing up and my grandmother said, you know, well, I'll go to church when I get myself together, when I get right. And even as a kid, I thought that was strange. I thought that that's why you went to church to get yourself together and and to get right. And so it was only in the last year being on a book tour and being asked questions like this a lot that it kind of dawned on me. You know, we kind of take our parents for granted and we don't always know our parents' stories. Um, I was raised by my mother and my grandmother, but they both passed away in 2005. So I didn't get a chance to really talk to them about it, but they were both single women who had children without husbands. And so, you know, given the traditional Black evangelical church, they didn't feel welcome there. Mm -hmm. But they weren't rejecting the teachings of the church because they were still sending me as if, you know, there was still hope for me, which I think is really interesting. And I think it's also worth noting that my grandmother didn't have my mother and her brother by herself. You know, she had um, them with my grandfather who was, his family was literally, you know, pillars of the first church I attended. They were the brick masons that built the church and they were leaders within the church and he was still welcome at the church. So right away there are these double standards. You know, of course, I didn't know this at the time. I didn't have the language for it at the time, but that's sort of my foundation with the church. And then church became something I would do with the neighborhood kids. You know, everybody went to church. You were supposed to go to church. But I always, you know, had these questions because all these binaries were just so confusing, being in the church or out of the church, you know, women and all of these rules and all these prohibitions around sex and what you could wear and what you could do. And it always looked like the women outside of the church were having the most fun. (laughs) You know, they were wearing the tight jeans and the heels. And I was like, it's so unfortunate they're going to hell, you know? (laughs) And so as as a kid, it's like trying to reconcile these teachings that just don't really aligned with what we know to be the nuance and the complexity of human experience. So again, I was questioning, you know, within, because, you know, that was the other thing you were taught, you don't question, you know, this idea of a blind faith. And then becoming an adolescent, I was definitely wondering, how am I supposed to manage all of this, being the hormones and the drive and, you know, and the interest in sex and masturbation, But being told all of that was wrong unless you were in a a heterosexual marriage. Nevertheless, I did marry heterosexually and I didn't have children until I was married and I did all the things right. And yet I still wasn't happy. And I found myself sort of going through the motions of Christianity straight up until the time when my mother died. And at the same time, I think it's significant. At the same time, I was getting separated and then divorced from my first husband. And I realized that I had been performing. I had been performing Christianity for a really long time. And I thought, what am I doing? I I can't waste any more of my life 
pretending to be something I'm not, pretending to feel things I don't feel. I mean, if anything, my mother's life and death, she died at 52, um, showed me that none of us have that kind of time to waste. And so I was going to use whatever time I had left being true to myself and being authentic. And that's when I stopped going to church. I was struck by something a journalist wrote in a piece about your book in Slate. She wrote, in Philia's buoyant diction, the rhythm of her language, her references, the details of her characters' lives is an unselfconscious blackness, free of the need to contend with or accommodate a white omnipresence. Indeed, the shadow in these stories, the omnipresence Philia's characters both love and struggle against is black. Do you agree that the omnipresence your characters are struggling against is black? Yes, absolutely. You know, Toni Morrison and others have uh, talked and written extensively about the white gaze. And that's something that many of us as Black writers are pushing against in our work. I hear from friends who went through um, MFA programs. They were taught either directly or indirectly that they were supposed to be writing with a white gaze in mind. And if they were going to write about Blackness, they had to do it in a way that interpreted Blackness or Black culture for a white audience. And what I am adamant about, and I don't know any other way to write, is writing in a way where the only gaze is ours, is the Black gaze. And specifically in these stories, you know, Black Southern women. And what I hope that people take away is that we can write very culturally specific stories that other people who don't share those cultural specifics can still connect with. That's the beauty, that the more specific our stories, the more engrossing, the more powerful, and yet people who haven't lived those exact same lives can still find these entry points. If it's a mother-daughter dynamic, so many people can relate to that. Religious dogma, so many people can relate to that. Anything that forces you into a binary that you don't fit into, so many of us can relate to that. So I didn't have to think about anybody other than my characters and women who look like them, you know, to tell their stories and still create something where other people can have access points as well. And so it really did put lie to this idea that we're all obligated to write for the majority. And honestly, if we look at it, the majority isn't the majority, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> we, you know, we, we are the global majority. <laughs> um, and so, you know, so definitely I was pushing back there. Right. Um, it's for good reason that the title of this book references ladies and not men. You know, women play the leads throughout the book. And you have said the men showed up in these stories in the way that they showed up in my experience. Can you spell that out a little? Yes. Um, so, you know, yes and no. You know, I, now that I, I, I like, I, I agree with what I said, right? <laughs> But now I'm thinking about it a little differently. I think it goes back to that. Um, I would add an addendum. The men show up in these stories the way they showed up for me at certain parts of my life. Certainly, I was in two very long marriages to men. And so men loomed a lot larger in my life, you know, at those times. But there's also a part of it where, you know, I go back to how to make love to a physicist. That was sort of, you know, a do-over for me. I wish that I had approached relationships with men that way, which mm -hmm. is 
getting myself together first and then making room for someone else in my life. But at the same time, in Dear Sister, my father was a lot like the father in in that story, present but not present, not the father that my sisters and I needed him to be. And then also in some of the other stories, there's this sort of fleeting characteristic to the men who were there. Um, But I did push back on someone who was interviewing me and who was saying, you know, basically the men in this book are awful. And I was like, now that I think is an overstatement. I think the men in this book are complicated, but there are certainly men who are not at all awful. Mm-hmm. No one, regardless of gender, is all one thing or another. So what I hope that people will see is that the men and the women in these stories are complex and people can be more than one thing at once. But what is true is that men are not centered in my book. I was talking to my friend Damon Young, and he was one of the first people I was in conversation with about my book. And he said, you know, men in this book are garnish. And I really love that imagery because the women are the meal. You know, we're the feast, we're the abundance. And the men are on the plate. You know, they're there, (laughs) but they're not the meal. And, And I think that's important. Like I'm a a, a cisgender woman. I need to read stories where cis people aren't centered, where the trans people are centered. White people need to read stories where people who aren't white are centered. And men need to read stories where men are not centered. I think that's important for us to grow and learn to be better to each other. You've said that your relationship with your mother was the defining relationship of your life and that it wasn't an easy one. You've also said that you hope the book will spark healing conversations between mothers and daughters. Is the book for you on any level a conversation with your mother? Unexpectedly. You know, I thought that we had, you know, I mean, she passed away and she she was in hospice for six weeks before she died. And, you know, we had a good six weeks. You know, I felt like we said everything that needed to be said. And when she passed away, I didn't have anything that was like, oh, you know, I wish I'd said this or I wish I'd said that at the time. Right. But you keep living, you know, in 2005, (laughs) it was 16 years ago. And um, looking at the collection and looking at the stories I've written, I realized that we still had some unfinished business. I realized a lot has happened to me as a woman, as a daughter, and as a mother myself, a mother of daughters, a lot has happened in those six years. I've learned a lot. I've been challenged a lot. I've cried a lot. And, you know, those are the parts of my mom and I that show up in this collection without me intending it to happen. I think I understand my mother a lot better than I did when she was alive. Even though she wasn't here to tell me parts of her story, you know, I knew enough of it. And then I brought that to bear with my own experiences of getting older and also having daughters who were getting older. And there would be these light bulb moments where we start to see our parents as people and not just as our parents. I love this idea that even if we think we have nothing more to say to our parents, even if we think we've resolved everything, we haven't. Mm -hmm. And for writers, what that means is that we might well reread what we've been writing and find ourselves thinking, huh, 
guess we still had some unfinished business, mom and dad. It's one of my favorite things about writing, actually, those moments of realizing that deep down, I thought something that had not before risen to the conscious level and might never otherwise have. You know, you're reminding me of our episode where we interviewed neuroscientist Siddhartha Ribeiro about dreams and how our subconscious mind is always dreaming, even when we're awake. That power of the subconscious is why literally every book I've ever written turns out to be about the same thing, even though superficially they could not be more different. Mm -hmm. But going back to Disha, one of the things I love about her is how she conceives of those unconscious thoughts that make their way to the page as starting points for healing conversations, in this instance, between mothers and daughters. But she also says that the book has sparked healing conversations for church congregations, since one of the themes of the book is the tension that exists between what the church expects of women on the one hand and what women actually need and want on the other. I was pleasantly surprised to hear that a lot of church groups are engaging with it in a really positive way. I love that too. It's so nice to think of a book connecting people in a conversation, even and maybe especially when the book is a kind of indictment of a group that they cherish. A very different kind of dynamic or emotion, one of loneliness and longing for connection to others, is also at the heart of the stories in this collection. We asked Disha about that. Here's what she said. I think the longing in the book is more mine than any of the sex and church stuff because that is a thread of my experience that has carried me over the last 20 years or so, which is, you know, the span of of my fiction writing life. And then, you know, I finished the book in September of 2019, so pre-pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, people started to be a lot more comfortable publicly talking about loneliness and longing. And for me, that had always been like this dirty little secret. And so it was interesting during that time to have written my longing into these stories, consciously or subconsciously, and then have this time of like great isolation just as the book is about to come out. And so a number of readers shared that with me, that they could feel that loneliness and longing in the stories as they were sitting in their apartment alone in the midst of a pandemic. And I too, I wasn't always alone, but you know, my one daughter's in college and my other younger daughter would be at her father's place for two weeks at a time. So there would be these stretches where I was also alone. I was winning awards in in virtual award ceremonies, sitting on my couch alone. Yeah, yeah. That deep longing piece is me and has been me for a long time. You know, the relationships I had and didn't have with my parents created a, a kind of longing that becomes this sort of ache that, you know, you carry around like a knapsack. Mm-hmm. And so absolutely it showed up in my stories. You've said that you didn't realize until after this collection of stories was completed that each one considers, and I'm quoting you now, what happens when we try to get ourselves free in large and small ways, in private or right out loud? Why do you think that as you wrote, you were so interested on an unconscious level in what it was like to get free? The freedom and the longing kind of went hand in hand for me, even though these women are kind of getting free of, you know, these sexual binaries and constraints and the church's teachings, 
I was kind of having a parallel experience in a number of relationships. Um, as I mentioned, I'm divorced twice. So getting free of relationships that didn't serve me, the entangled relationships that I had with my mother and my father, I have an interesting relationship with the freedom from those relationships because the freedom came when they died. Mm. And my father died more suddenly than my mother. You know, with my mother, we knew she was dying. Um, And so, you know, there were things that my mom and I were able to work out, but we worked them out in the context of her being in hospice. We -hmm. never really had a chance to heal our relationship and then have the relationship on better terms. We didn't really get that except for six weeks when we knew she was dying. And when my mother went into hospice, my father and I reconciled because my mother had asked him to make things right with me. And she asked me to allow him to. So we kind of had this just add water, you know, reconciliation (laughs) as well. And then within a few months of that, he died suddenly. So yeah, now I'm free of these very complicated, at times very painful relationships but wow, <laughs> you know, now what? And so it was, you know, so the nature of freedom, I think, became something that I realized was a lot more complicated than I had thought because I just wanted my parents to be who I needed them to be, period, full stop. But what if they're just no longer here? Sure, they're not being hurtful anymore, but they're also not here at all. So freedom is this sort of very messy, complicated business. I think that came through in the stories, even though I wasn't thinking about that itself. But um, that idea of being tied to something or someone or some relationship dynamic that is just killing you, you know, I've been there. And so my characters were there, but under different circumstances. Mm. You've lived in the North for a while, but these stories are set in the South. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's something about the South that makes it particularly fertile ground for storytelling? I think so. I I think, um, and, you know, and I say this, you know, (laughs) what is it called? Confirmation bias? I don't know. know, (laughs) Maybe you think the grass is always greener, but it's weird that I miss the South while I've been here in Pittsburgh for half my life now, but was not longing for the day to go back to the South specifically. I definitely longed to get out of Pittsburgh, but the longing for the South, it was more nostalgia than anything. I didn't necessarily want to go back physically, but when I was starting to imagine characters and situations that was the fertile ground. And I think there is such an intimacy, or at least I experienced it growing up amongst people and an openness that I haven't experienced anywhere else. You know, I lived in Pittsburgh. I also lived in New York and Connecticut. And I just remembered, it was brief that I was in New York and Connecticut, um, just the isolation that I felt there and just the dullness of it all. Whereas the South, by comparison, from the food to the weather, everything is just alive and colorful. And the music of how people speak, it's unmatched. And so a lot of what you see in the story or hear in the stories are people's voices. 
Um, and it's the voices often that stayed with me for so long, the turns of phrase that were so resonant. I've not experienced that in other parts of the country or the ways that we delight in food. And it was only once I left the South that I see, you know, encounter people where, you know, food was like an enemy, <laughs> you know, whereas growing up, food was love. It was family. It was celebration. It was the way that you showed people that you were thinking of them and you were caring of them. Even if you didn't have the words, food could convey so much. It's funny, you know, like Disha, I don't really want to go back physically to live in the South. And at the same time, like Disha, I keep finding myself writing about the South, especially lately. I also love what she said about food, that sometimes we treat it like an enemy, but growing up, and I'm quoting her here, food was love, it was family, it was celebration. I don't know how strictly Southern that is, but it's certainly true that when I was growing up in the South, my family used food to show love. Now I feel like that's a little more verboten for some good health reasons, but I mean, nothing says love like my mom's sour cream coffee cake. Ooh, sour cream coffee cake. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I grew up in the North and food was definitely love in my family too. It, it's a Jewish cliche, but true nonetheless, that my mother's chicken soup is a cure-all and an offering and, you know, ritualized. And it makes sense, right? Making a special food for someone, it's basically like saying to them, I know what makes you feel good and happy and full. I want to nourish you and I want to take time and make an effort to give you the most perfect version of that thing that I possibly can. Yeah. And now I'm hungry. <laughs> and, I want to, <laughs> and I want to go bake shortbread for my children. Oh, my God. Shortbread. I feel like that is so underrated. You have to promise to save me some. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to save you some. I'm going to make you your very own batch. Oh. Talk about love. That is so nice of you, Eve. I'm so excited. And I have to give Disha a special thank you because she got us talking about this and now I'm getting shortbread. Yes, I promise yes. I will. You will. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I think that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Disha at www.dishafilia.com and on Twitter at dishafilia. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.